however we do this top 10, Summer of Sam is in my top 10. <laughs> no! <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine that gives a vital injection of nerdy film chat to anyone who wants it and doesn't make you wait around for your second dose. It's April 2021, and by the time you're listening to this, you can go to the zoo and finally get your hair cut again, but we're a month away from being able to go back to the cinema. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that lovely introduction, and uh, we'll, we'll just get into it. Uh, each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world split into two reels for those of you who like to take an intermission between instalments of film content. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which will take you through to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 12. First up, there's a roundup of the month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, it's one of the big ones, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Spike Lee's supercharged and divisive chronicle of 70s New York under siege from an active serial killer, Summer of Sam. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 12, we're discussing Ridley Scott's unrealised historical epic, Tripoli. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the new trend for Disney's live-action remakes of their animated classics. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 12, we're looking at how CGI has changed the world of cinema and what it means for the industry going forward. But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the podcast magazine Letters page. Uh, people have been in touch uh, about our remakes uh, that we're featuring this month. They always get in touch about the remakes. The Disney live-action production line uh, is in full flow, and people were having their say. Pedro says they're pointless. I would always watch the original animated ones instead. Stanley says it's always easier to remake their old classics and cash in than to come up with new ideas. You've been paying attention to our feature, Stanley. Thank you. Gretchen, on the other hand, says I love the new live-action remakes, apart from Aladdin, which they messed up. And I'm really looking forward to Cruella. Well, there you go. Finally, Mark with an interesting idea. They should do a live-action remake of Atlantis, The Lost Empire. That would be sick. Interesting. I'm actually on board for that. People, people have been responding to our big conversation topic for episode 12 as well, CGI in film. Lauren says it's all about money. It makes films more achievable to make and helps with the spectacle of big blockbusters. It's good when it's done well, but it's not always done well. Sean says when it's good, it's really good, but when it's bad, it can really take you out of the moment. But Matthias thinks, for the most part, CGI has been bad for the film industry. Summer of Sam got some attention too. Jared and Onyi love it. Daniel less keen, but says, I like it more than most people seem to, uh, despite the criticisms. Christopher weighs in on Judas and the Black Messiah, which we've been discussing on the socials. Damn good film, he says. Never fucking trust the CIA or FBI, people. <laughs> Wise words. And finally, our old friend of the pod, Mickey V, checks in on some of the features in our previous podcasts. Uh, really enjoying the year of the Carpenter feature. Reminded me how much I enjoyed Dark Star. And thanks for the heads up about the White Tiger and One Night in Miami. I would have missed them otherwise. Well, that's what we're here for. Uh, 
Thanks for all your messages. Please keep them coming. Now on with episode 12. Now for our monthly roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the beginning of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021 and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. So, I mean, the first piece of news is a little bit self-referential, but we, we've we've hit our 12th episode. That's provided a year's worth of content of Double Reel. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to keep the podcast going and we seem to have got a, an audience of listeners who, who keep tuning in and keep enjoying it. Um, I hope you're still enjoying doing it, James, because I think the podcast has um, changed beyond all recognition and got so much better since you got more fully involved. Well, yeah, it's it's mental to think that it's been a year. Um, I remember um, you. I remember just offering if you wanted someone to chat to for one of your episodes back when it was just you, you know, discussing, um, you know, news and things uh, about film and films that you'd watched. And then, I, and then it just kind of became, you know, it was good to bounce off each yeah. other. And now, you know, we've got, you know, we've got a good format that we uh, we research yeah. every month. You know, we we watch more films and you know get to discuss them. So yeah, I mean, I, I worry a little bit that people will like find find the podcast or search for the podcast, listen to episode one, and then never listen to any more. Because <laughs> it's rough as fuck. It's just me. I didn't even have a very good microphone or anything like that. Mm. Um, and sort of subsequent from that you joined and that became like a regular slot your conversation and i got a microphone and i learned how to talk properly on the, on the mic and everything <laughs> it's so much easier now though talking backwards and forwards i mean it's, it must be hard going and just listening to just me but I, I like the format we've got now and uh we're we're going to keep doing this we're going to keep making it as fresh as we can and, and thank you for still listening sweet now now that we've finished patting each other on the back um in terms of uh, of other news there was a new story which i'm highly skeptical of but i thought it was worth a mention there was a, a a new story from one of these you know we pulled this shit out of our ass.com but anyway that christopher nolan is reportedly in talks with marvel to do an ncu film uh no and, and they're talking about him doing silver surfer oh even i'm i'm not a it big fan of christopher nolan at the moment so that'll be shit it doesn't it doesn't fit their I don't think it entirely fits their their model either. I mean, I know Taika Waititi is a very distinctive director, and I know that the Russo brothers have, you know, you know, are happy working the way they do. But you know, Marvel is driven by Kevin Feige in the in the in, in back office, and I'm not sure you know that's how Nolan wants to work. But hey, it it, it got me to click on the article, so we'll see. I, I just thought it was interesting, given that we talked about Quentin Tarantino doing a Silver Surfer film on this uh, on this podcast, which I still quite fancy seeing actually. Um, other than that, there's an absolutely delightful story that I'm not sure if it's even even news. It's just something that I found this month. Um, in in Japan, you can buy various toy figurines related to films, and one of the latest ones they brought out, which I absolutely love, is Godzilla, Mechagodzilla, another of their monster characters. You can get figurines of them holding press conferences and apologizing for destroying the city. <laughs> So you've got them like with their heads bowed, shamefaced in front of a little desk and a microphone, um, giving a press conference about how they've learned their lesson and they're not going to do it again. I just that's fucking delightful. They should um, release ones really of uh, the government and whaling um, companies going to the Antarctic and going to coves on the coast of Japan and murdering dolphins and whales for anyone who's not seen a sea spiracy, which should be called conspiracy. Yes, not a big fan yes. of Japan at the moment. They can go and fuck themselves. Yeah, and and but the people who did that uh, documentary really missed a trick with the title, didn't they? Conspiracy. There you go. It's right there right for you. There. 
because it's actually quite an interesting documentary to watch but as soon as i saw the title i was like you're a fucking idiot i'm not going to enjoy this as much as i should now because the guy making it didn't have the insight to make that the title yeah i know other news um this actually landed before after we'd recorded the previous podcast episode but slightly before it, it, it gets released there's a lag while i you know edit and, and, and mess around with it and get it up for 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 release uh but yeah Cotto sadly passed away um he was in his 80s, so he'd had, a, he'd had a good innings and had a long and stellar film career. I uh, just wanted to take a couple of minutes to just uh, recognise his his career and his contribution because he's one of those actors that I grew up with, um, you know, loving his films. Um, obviously, he's one of my favourite Bond villains in Live and Let Die. He was in Alien, the first Alien film where he was terrific. Uh, an absolutely stunning turn in Midnight Run, which is generally a brilliant film for anyone who hasn't seen it with uh, Robert De Niro as a bounty hunter and Yafet Kotto as the FBI agent who's getting in his way. Um, but yeah, he's, he's generally been a, you know, a kind of a mainstay of, uh, of, of film for so long. He's so, such a recognizable guy and just wanted to kind of recognize his passing and, and, and give, give a little nod to his, uh, to his career. Yeah, no, I don't think I could add anything or put anything, put it, put it better than myself. Sorry. He was, he was probably a bit of a pioneer, one of the first, you know, black faces to see on screen, you know, in, in big and popular films. Um, maybe outside of maybe Sidney Poitier is one of yeah because he, he was around in the late sixties early seventies he did some interesting stuff on stage as well with Shakespeare and and uh, uh, the Great White Hope is a film that we discussed when we were talking about the Spike Lee Joe Lewis film and Yafet Kotto is the guy who played that character first on Broadway before they made a film of it so mm-hmm. that was really interesting so yeah Yafet Kotto R.I.P. Um, the other the other news is that that's been quite big is the Snyder Cut has been released to um, raptures of approval from his fans uh, and mixed feelings from everyone else. Um, I'm I'm yet to watch it. I'm not sure I'll bother the Snyder Cut of, of Justice League. I'm not sure I can. Uh, I'm not sure I can tolerate four hours of that. When a Snyder film comes out and isn't very good, I don't think the answer is more Zack Snyder. In the same way that more you know more ginger pubic hair is never the answer either. More more Zack Snyder is never the answer either. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've watched the first hour and a half, two hours of it, and it is better than Justice League. That's just um, a criticism that we'll get onto later. No film should be that long, and if it is going to be that long, it has to be superb. It has to be on point. Everything has to be polished, and it's not. It's got. It's better character development. It's better. The villain is apparently better as the film goes on. Um, you see more from the Flash, which is good because the Flash is actually a really underrated superhero. But yeah, four-hour film by Zack Schneider, and Zack Schneider hasn't actually made a good film. I, um, see, I don't, I don't understand what DC's doing. I mean, the thing is that, and, and everyone goes, "Oh, you should let Zack Snyder do it his way." He's still trying to pack everything into one film that the MCU and other franchises do several films of. Yeah, I mean, he and everyone's, fi- everyone's fine to watch. Superman, yeah, yeah he made a terrible mess of that as well. But everyone's fine watching more than one superhero film. That's why there's sequels to superhero films. That's why you know there's you know the the, the franchise you know can can allow stories to follow on. So why pack everything into one film? It doesn't make any sense. But they're doing it. That there's ne- they're never going to be happy. I don't think because the, what he did at the Snyder Cut could never be released as a film like in normal cinematic release. No, it's just not going to happen. And you know, there are Snyder fans who love that kind of dark world that he's created, and everyone else thinks it's completely incoherent. Um, it's not sustainable. DC have said they're not going to get Snyder to do any more films. They're trying to draw a line under this. So there you go. That's your lot. And and DC, you know, whatever whatever happens with the Snyder Cut and everything else, they're still going back to the drawing board. Other than that, I guess, I mean, the Oscars are the, are the next big thing. I mean, we had the Golden Globes last, uh, last month. Uh, we talked about that, the... 
sort of predictable winners did well, like Nomadland and, and, and everything else. And and now the Oscars are coming on the 26th of April. We discussed the Oscars in our big conversation. We're kind of, I think we're fascinated by the Oscars, but I've mixed feelings about some of the decisions they make. It's probably a good, uh, a good summary of where we are with the Oscars, uh, isn't it, James? Uh, yeah, I've not been paying that much attention to the Oscars. Um, I've not watched many of these films this year. I think what's happening with the Oscars now is that it's becoming, for me, the same films over and over again. I think the only film I've actually watched is One Night in Miami because I had a keen interest in watching it. Yeah, but I've just the films that they're releasing, they're just they're all Oscar bait films. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I did like the yeah, fact that, that's that, often the case, and without without a without a cinema release for films to see what reaches an audience in the usual way, it becomes even more predictable that the Oscar bait films get made and then get nominated. It's almost like they, they, they've bypassed um, the audience a little bit this time. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Yeah. I did like the idea that Maria Bakalova got nominated for the second poor hat film, but um, yeah, did she yeah. be nominated again for this? Because they do that weird thing. They have best comedy stroke musical at the Globes, which yeah, is yeah, she's been Oscar nominated for. Oh, a that's good. Role. But yeah, because that, that always splits into. It's like I'd never get that. It's like having best horror or western. They're two different things. Yeah, it's, uh, um, but yeah, I'm glad she's getting recognised. It's really. Oh no, I mean, I'm, I've not seen any of the films. I'd like Leslie Odom Jr. to win for One Night in Miami. I don't think it will, but uh, I think Nomadland's going to clear clear everything. Director. Uh, actress in a leading role, um, but yeah, other than that, yeah, Nomadland is looking strong. Chadwick Boseman is looking really strong for um, best actor posthumously. Yeah, a couple, um, of, a couple of snubs I think from uh, De Five Bloods. I feel like um, can't remember his name, but he plays the the, the big the big kind of psychotic one in uh, De Five Bloods. Um, the big tall oh, the, oh uh, yeah, God, I can't remember. Oh. He was born in Britain, wasn't he? I, I, I love him. Uh, I, have to, I have to get his name now. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it. Um, Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo. Yeah, he's yeah, great. He's, he's he been. I think, he's, I think he's been in like a bunch of crime films, like a couple of David Mamet films and stuff. He's yeah, he's terrific. Yeah, it's a bit of a snub. I mean, the best best director looks like nailed on for Chloe Zhao. She's one to twelve with the bookies. Um, you know, best you know, uh, best film is going to be Nomadland. Everyone says uh, Emerald Fennell is looking strong for best screenplay. Kerry Mulligan for actress. Um, no, so, it's I mean, not no, Katie, no, no, it's not Katie Mulligan. It's Frances McDormand. She won the BAFTA. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I do beg your pardon. Yeah, sorry. It is Frances McDormand. She won the BAFTA. I do think Kerry Mulligan looks that 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 film looks really interesting. I'm actually going to watch that. That very promising woman, promising young woman. That looks interesting. That does. But uh, yeah, I've, I've not really not got much to say. Apologies, I've just not been watching these. Yeah, things. It, it is. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to see if there's any big surprises. I mean, by the time you yeah. get to the Oscars, there's been the, the Globes, the Baftas, and usually at least one other award ceremony, which kind of tells you which way the wind's blowing. And the only thing that changes it is if the something comes out in the cinema that get, gets a really big, um, you know, audience uh, re- reaction, which we're not getting this uh, this year. So we're stuck with that. See how it goes. I mean, out, out of the Oscar films, I did watch uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which was nominated for a couple of things. And uh, Daniel Kaluuya looks looks odds on for best supporting actor in that. Um, I mean, I, I watched Judas and the Black Messiah. I thought the performances were great, and it's an incredible story. It's like a great story, but I thought the direction of it was a little flat. He's a first time director, Shaka King, and he's done some TV, and he's based on his own screenplay. And I think you can tell the difference between a, a Spike Lee film about a, a, an important, you know, historical figure. And I know Regina King was a um, uh, first-time director, but she really smashed it. 
in, in her debut one night in Miami, this guy, Shaka King, the film was okay, but I felt the script and the, the, the film, the direction could have given the story a lot more than it got. I thought apart from Daniel Collier and Lakeith Stanfield, absolutely, you know, given it everything they had to make their characters come to life. I thought it was okay. When you re- you know, when you read, read the story of, of behind a film and you find that much more enthralling than the film itself, you feel like yeah. it's a missed opportunity, but you know, I advise people to watch the film because the two main actors are really good and it's an incredible story. I think people need to know what happened uh, to you know uh, Fred Hampton. But uh, the film's okay. Could have been better. Um, so the, the next thing we do with our um, with our roundup is we talk about our resolutions for the year and how we're getting on. So uh, why don't I pass it on to you, James, and you can say how you got on um, on that balance between TV and, and film this month. Um, I watched a couple of documentaries. I feel like I one above TV shows, but just one below um, films. I watched yeah. um, what was it? Sea Spiracy. I can't remember. I want to say the title that should be rather than the title that actually is. But Sea Spiracy. Yeah, yeah. Which is incredible. It makes you hate Japan's uh, government and well, the Chinese government's already in the mud. So um, yeah, there's the, some really abhorrent practices going on in that part of the world when it comes to dolphins whales fish sharks Mm. um which is really good i'd recommend anyone to watch it and then i also watched um sherpa um which is a brief documentary about um the sherpa people in nepal who live you know Mm. in the himalayas and it's about this guy who is has climbed everest i think 21 times and this will have been his 22nd ascent And it's basically it. Fo- it kind of follows um, a year after those big fights between the native Sherpa, Sherpas, Sherpa. I think Sherpa mm-hmm. is the correct term, and the uh, foreigners who pay a lot to um, have an expedition up there because they feel like it's being touristy. Um, and I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, basically they're they're preparing for it. There was a big fisty cuffs the the year before, and now they're going up uh, in the in the season this year, so it's quite tense. And what the way that the way Everest is scaled, there's a little ice fall. It's called the Kumbu Ice Fall. It's like a glacier, basically, so it's always moving. So it's really dangerous yeah. to pass. Um, so the sh- um, the Sherpa are paid um, to basically climb it and you know set stuff up for camps one, two, three, and four. So it goes base camp, then one, two, three, four, and then the summit, then back to four, and then back all the way down. Yeah. Um, and uh, because it's an ice fall, the ice is always moving, and um, you see the GoPro footage, and basically there's a Sherpa climbing up. Um, up a up up the side of a cl- ice cliff, and a fourteen thousand ton block of ice just falls on top of the Sherpa, um, and um, no 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 people that have paid to um go on it are there for it. They've been acclimatizing somewhere else, so there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of anger towards that because they're they're acclimatizing at a different part. They have to go above a certain height to acclimatize, and rather than go up and down the ice fall loads, they go to a different part and. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's really it's really harrowing. I, I can't remember the exact figures. I'll try and find the. Um, so it's kind of about how the Sherpas are doing a much more dangerous job than these kind of tourists who well, like yeah, to, who they're taking the, up the mountain. The a whole bit. the whole tone of the film is that um, it talks about Tenzing Norgay and how um, Tenzing Norgay um, obviously uh, went up the up Everest the first time it was um, scaled with Edmund Hillary and John Hunt. John Hunt and Edmund Hillary got. Uh, uh, knighthoods and Tenzing Norway got the George's Medal or the uh, yeah. George. I think it's the George's Medal. And don't think he can get the George's Cross. And people felt that you know he he climbed it. 
you know, just as well as they did, um, and didn't get as much attention as praise. He became a kind, a kind of hero in Asia, and ever there's like it's not just a, a Nepalese thing; it's across Asia. They feel like you know, um, they gave a lot of credit to the British people. Um, but back to the actual uh, main story: uh, 16, 16 Sherpas. It's Sherpas actually. Um, passed that were passed away. They were killed by the avalanche, and um, when these Sherpas have to carry like thousands and thousands of kilograms of equipment. Um, and you know, just so you know, some Westerners can go and climb a mountain, um, which is really sacred to these these people. So it was really interesting. Um, yeah, and they never tell the story of the climbing of Everest from the point of view of the Sherpas, do they? Even they do a phenomenal amount of the work. Yeah, they yeah they they are the are the unsung heroes. They climb up. They yeah. they do the ladders across, like you know, those big you know those famous shots of fault, like the really high falls. Um, so yeah, that was a really good uh, documentary to watch. Um, no, no, it sounds really good. I think we we don't discuss documentaries enough on here, and we should. I remember in it turn, reminds me the first the first documentary you ever watched was When We Were Kings. You probably don't remember it because you were about two. Muhammad Ali one, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just remember I was watching it, and you were absolutely mesmerised by Muhammad Ali, and you were standing in front of the screen, kind of doing little boxing copying Ali on the screen. I thought that was <laughs> yeah, awesome. no, it's a very good documentary. I like a good documentary. Um, yeah. I think we've talked before about certain feature films might have worked better as a documentary, and we we have different angles on that. For me, it's about the historical accuracy, and for you, it's about you know you know portraying events you know almost in in an exploitative Oscar bait way when it would have just been better to tell the story. Well, yeah, I mean, in a a documentary form, there's a really good documentary about Jeffrey Epstein and all the horrible shit he got up to, and. um, you know, I don't want anyone to play Jeffrey Epstein in an attempt to win an Oscar. So just tell me what happened with you know, you know, witness accounts and testif, you know, yeah, testification yeah. is that a word? Um, I don't know. It is now testimony. Testimony. That's testimony. <laughs> testification is probably something much more painful. Yeah. So yeah, that was a really good documentary. In terms of actual films, I watched um, out with the films we were going to watch for this podcast. I watched The Damn United, which is an excellent film. Um, and I yeah. Think yeah. Um, potentially going to discuss that at a later point in more detail, yeah. but a great film for anyone who's not seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, again, I haven't watched, uh, much outside of the, uh, you know, the, the ones that we were going to watch, um, Blade of the Immortal I watched. I know I've been talking about Takeshi Miike films on previous episodes and Spug, uh, a fan of the podcast who wrote in was saying he'd like to see us do more Asian extreme cinema. And Takeshi Miike is one of the flagship directors of that. Blade of the Immortals based on a manga. It's about a, a samurai, like an assassin who's been killing people for money. And he gets a, a witch's curse, which means he can't can't die. And the reason he can't die is he's infected with these worms, which kind of basically keep his body alive and heal any wounds. Um, so it's pretty gross. That's why Takeshi Miike does the story. And it's um, it's all the battles that he goes through to try and achieve redemption. Um it was okay. Um, it had a great opening scene and a great ending, and it sort of really meandered in, in the middle. I wonder if it would have been better as a TV series, and it has been made into a TV series in Japan instead, uh, or as well as this. So um, it was good. It was worth watching, because Kashimike is always worth watching, but I think it's a um, – it it wobbles a bit in the middle. Uh, it, it might be that the storyline had like meaning and resonance for Japanese audiences that Western viewers would miss because a lot of it was about you know which samurai code or which kind of fighting you know fighting school should teach the samurais to fight and I, there's probably a lot of social significance to that which doesn't make a lot of sense to Western audiences. Um, apart from that, my one of my I talked about Judas and the Black Messiah. One of my film resolutions was to uh, sort of rewatch some of my some of the old classics that I haven't got round to for years. Um, 
and uh, I rewatched Fight Club almost by accident, actually, because I was thinking about trying to watch the right stuff because we've been talking about it. And then Fight Club just happened to be on. You know, you finish watching one thing, you're having a little flick. One of the film channels on TV, Fight Club, is literally about to start. And I caught the start of it on TV and I thought, why don't I get the DV and watch this without adverts? Just watched it all the way through. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 100% certain that Fight Club still stands up. It's just as raw as ever. And I think it it probably speaks now even more to kind of the toxic masculinity and these kind of militias and stuff that you have now, as well as all the, you know, the, the character stuff to do with um, the three main leads in the film. Um, I can, it's just, it's really, you know, it's kind of fucking really brutal. Everyone talks about violent, violent is it's actually a really funny film as well. I don't remember, remember the last time you watched fight club. Do you remember the bit where they've got to go and start a fight with somebody and one of them manages to start a fight with a priest? <laughs> It's absolutely tremendous because this priest is obviously trying to be, you know, go out and minister to his people. And at the end, he just loses it so much. He's like throwing punches and windmilling this guy. It's absolutely tremendous. And then something really horrible will happen. Someone will get shot and really, I mean, David Fincher, absolutely on top form now. So, yeah, I'm totally you know, delighted I watched that yeah, again. He, he um, really did boss the 90s with his films with Seven and that particularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, still bossing it in my opinion, but I think he doesn't. The thing with, um, uh, David Fincher is he makes whatever film he wants to make. And when it, when I'm interested in the film he's making, I love it. And when I'm not, it's like, I admire what a good job he's done, but I'm not that keen on the story. If you see what I mean? Like I was never that keen on Benjamin Button, even though I can't fault the job he did. I'm just not interested in that story. So when I'm interested in a Fincher film, I usually absolutely love it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I did was, um, uh, I, I, you know, I agreed at the beginning of the year we were going to make 2021 the year of the Carpenter. So I watched another John Carpenter classic from my list. Uh, and this month it was The Fog, which is one of his more famous names. Um, this came out in 1980. It was his follow-up to the hugely successful Halloween. Um, and the thing is, it's t- it's actually quite different from Halloween. He, he intended it as a ghost story. And that the start of the, of the film is actually kids around a campfire being told a ghost story that relates to the town that they live in. And it's trying to build that atmosphere. There's, uh, there's, you know, ghosts live here because of the the dodgy history of the town. Some of the things they did, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, before, you know, when when they were, you know, still setting up as a town. And then the the ghosts of the of, of the of the occupants of the ship that they that they killed come back to haunt the people in the uh, in the town. Um, so it's all it's much more about being atmospheric. There isn't like a there's no gore, although there's like you know some quite brutal killings, but there's almost like no blood or anything. But it it really works as kind of a an atmospheric, creepy like ghost story. The background to it was John Carpenter was uh, in in the seventies was promoting one of his films in in England and took the opportunity to go on a trip to Stonehenge. And he was there as it was getting dark towards the end of the night, and there's this like fog or mist like rolled in over Stonehenge, and it and it just looked creepy as anything. And his little kind of screenwriter's mind went, oh, that, there's an idea. I'm going to write a story around that. Um, had to reshoot it to make it work because I think it was a little bit tepid when he, he reshot it. And so we're going to need to actually put a bit more danger into it. Um, but, I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's got lots of actors in it who appear in other John Carpenter films. So there's lots of enjoyment. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Um, uh, a number of, of, of actors who kind of uh, turn up in, you know, the, the one of the main guys from Assault in Precinct 13 is in it. And um, it also makes makes excellent use of Adrian Barbeau's character. She's the radio DJ who's got basically the town's local radio station in the old lighthouse, which is above the fog and really secluded. So she's on her own and she's trapped there and she's trying to fight off the, you know, the, the, the monsters from the fog, but also warn everybody else. So she has some great monologues trying to warn people about where the fog's going and where they've got to get to. And she really builds the atmosphere. So she's really good. And, um, 
that uh, that inspired me to do an impromptu top ten in honor of the um, the use of a DJ. This is the best use of a radio DJ in films. Um, and the list goes like this: Play Misty for me, the Clint Eastwood classic, The Warriors, which has a great DJ commentating on the uh, on the action. Good morning, Vietnam. Obviously, yes, good, good. Sorry, I was waiting for that one. No, <laughs> pump, pump up the volume with Christian Slater. That was good. Uh, the Fisher King. People may not remember so much that uh, Jeff Bridges' character was a DJ, and that was very important. Uh, Talk to me with Don Cheadle. Do the right thing. Uh, Reservoir Dogs. Obviously, that's a classic uh, linking to uh, to all the story. American Graffiti has a, a great uh, rock and roll DJ, and uh, Vanishing Point. Uh, and there's, uh, there's an interesting throwing together of 10 very different films that are all linked by, uh, by and that one element. Shout out, honourable mention to Alan Partridge, Alpha Yes, Papa. of course, Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. Let's make that the number 11 in the impromptu num- uh, t- top 11. Or number 0.5, depending number, on your... Number 0.5, excellent. So the next month, the Year of the Carpenter entry will be Starman. That's an excellent film. I recommend anyone watch it. But uh, other than that, that's uh, that's the news and that's what we watched this month. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of the films we haven't seen, and it's meant we've got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of great works from Korean classic Lady Vengeance to cult classic The Blues Brothers. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations, including Wages of Fear, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, The Constant Gardener, Seven Samurai, Antouchable, and The French Connection. This month we're doing one of the the big ones. It's a film that James hasn't seen before, although I have. It's Akira Kurosawa's uh, groundbreaking film, Seven Samurai. Now, I I had a nervousness about recommending this film for you to watch, James, simply because I I did think when a film has been the template for films that we both love, like Star Wars and, frankly, every kind of action film where a team gets assembled, there's always a risk that, you know, I mean... Everyone who's watched this film and loved it used it to kind of enhance the action film template. Kurosawa went on and enhanced his action film template after doing this, and he kind of invented some of these things for this film by accident. And there's always a risk when you go back and watch this, you go, oh, this isn't anything like the films I like. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of its influence has been because film directors loved how he made the film. But I thought it would be worthwhile to see it because it is where a lot of great films started. I mean, just to talk about the influence of this film, The Magnificent Seven and all of its uh, remakes were... uh, uh, were, you know, were inspired by this film. A Bug's Life, the Pixar film, was inspired by this film. Um, anything where, you know, frankly, the first Avengers film uses a similar plot device to kind of get the team together, and the plot dynamics of like a group of of, of people, and you know, the, the, who's the who's the calm one, who's the loose cannon. So much of it was kind of generated here. You know, Lord of the Rings: Two Towers borrows from the the rainfall scene for. Um, for its battle. It, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, this film is so influential that you had had an influence of this film before you'd even been to see a film at the cinema, James. I don't, well, you probably don't remember this. But in the shopping centre near where we used to live, there was a cowboy ride, you know, a coin-operated ride. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a little plane and sometimes it's a little horse. And this was like a, a, a Wild West-style 
horse and carriage, you know, like a um, horse and wagon. Mm-hmm. And when they when you put the coin in and play it, it plays the Magnificent Seven theme tune by Elmer Bernstein. Is that dun, the, dun, 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 dun. the yes? Yep. Yeah. So you you were listening to that music and, and riding on your little kind of you know infant uh, ride with an influence of Seven Samurai. I mean, that's how far this film has spread. The problem is influence isn't this, you know. If someone, this one was made in 1954 in Japanese with subtitles, and it was intended to be like a historical epic. So it, it's the, the reason I, you know, this is a long pre- preamble. I'm almost defending the film, but you know, if you're a, if you're a big fan of of cars and you love the Porsche 911, part of you would go, "Oh, wouldn't it be great to drive the first ever Porsche 911?" But the f- first ever Porsche 911 at a top speed of 130 miles an hour, which most you know decent you know powerful family hatchbacks can now do. So there's always going to be a, a different. There's always going to be, I think, a distance or a, a block for the for an audience coming to this film for the very first time. And I think that's probably what you found when you watched Seven Samurai. Well, just to go back to the the ride thing, uh, I don't remember being an infant. I think I was like 14 at the time. I punched an infant so I could get on the ride before him. <laughs> that's not true. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when it comes to Seven Samurai. Um, Oh fuck me! I hated it. Oh. <laughs> I fucking hated it. No, yeah, no, I hated it for the like. I hated both films that we had to watch this, but we'll get onto that in a bit as well. But I hated this one less than I hated Summer of Sam because I watched it and I thought I've got to remember that this came out in 1954. Imagine being, you know, a cinema goer in 1954 and getting to see this film. It must have been awesome. It must have blown your mind. But the thing I hated was that it was three hours and thirty odd minutes long. And it was, it, I just didn't connect with it. It just, it, it, for a film like Seven Samurai, you think, okay, it's going to be a lot of badassery in this. And it wasn't. It was a lot of talking and planning and talking and planning and talking and planning and talking and planning and talking and planning. And it just, it fucking bored me. It really did. But I do, I do appreciate the fact that this is, you know, this guy was a pioneer of cinema and he was, you know, you know, to make a three and a half hour film back in those days that was engaging and people obviously loved it. You, you do have to respect that to some degree but for me it was it was fucking boring no no i said to you i said no film should be over three hours long and if it is it has to be polished and on point and excellent i feel like they just filmed everything and just chucked into the film it was just because they couldn't be asked editing it because i imagine editing it was very difficult back then but what i did say to you is i said that there was far too much kidding on and joking around especially from tashiro mifune's character and the only bits i thought were the only bit I thought that was excellent and I really enjoyed was the uh, bit where he basically just starts ranting off at the samurai for basically taking the piss out of him for not being a samurai himself. He's basically inherited it. You know, he's stolen someone's scroll and kidding on that he's an actual samurai when he's not. And he basically goes on a massive rant saying, well, you know, you're taking the piss out of farmers, but what else have farmers got to do? I'm a farmer's son and mm-hmm. you you force us to, you know, be like this. You, you know, beat us down. You, you treat us like shit and this is why we're like this. And they all, they kind of, they go all red face. That was the only bit where I thought it was excellent and I thought it was really good. But other than that, Toshiro Mifune's character is a big fucking joker in this. I had, yeah. I had no sympathy, spoiler alert, when his character dies or I didn't feel as bad because he'd been fucking about the entire film, you know, falling off his horse and shit and getting drunk. I didn't, I didn't, I thought Seven Samurai was going to be this completely badass film. And obviously uh, my appreciation of the action sequences are a lot different because now you can have epic lightsaber battles in Star Wars. You can have cool uh, sword 
uh, fights in Pirates of the Caribbean, which are a lot more choreographed and a lot more fun to watch than the fighting in this, because the fighting in this was shit. But I understand, again, it's dated, it's of its time, it's of its genre. But for a film about Seven Samurais, I didn't think I didn't think any of them were were badass at all. I thought it was really boring. And that's just an unfortunate thing, I think. But I, what I will say is that I imagine if I'd seen it when it came out, or when you maybe saw it back in whenever you watched maybe like back in the 80s. I don't know mm-hmm. when you first watched this film. That's a lot closer yeah. to being released to me watching it in 2021. There's a that's like 40 years, you know, difference. And so, I mean, I, the, the, yeah, the, the comparison would be the, uh, uh, you know, when I was, you know, when I was your age, the, a, a similar comparison would be, what's that? Um, maybe watching the first like, Dracula film and going, I can't understand why people found this scary. Do you know what I mean? Or, or it must have been scary at the time, but this is having no effect on me. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I do get where you're coming from, and, and I wonder if having sort of had that initial grounding, if you were to watch Throne of Blood, where um, Kurosawa adapts a samurai version of Macbeth uh, and, and does it in 110 minutes, um, or Hidden Fortress, which is like a solid two hours action film, which is still you know much more of its time. It's a film that came out in 1958, um, but you get a lot more of the, the badassery that you're talking about. It's probably interesting to start with the context of, of Seven Samurai in that Akira Kurosawa was born in about 1910. He was a, a young and up-and-coming film director in like 1940. You know, he happened to be born in Japan. He happened to be born in the country when it was a uh, essentially a fascist regime. He didn't have any choice in the matter. And when he was, he, he was unlucky, doubly unlucky in a way, because when he was making his films, despite his obvious abilities, he fell foul of the censors because his films were seen as being too um, uh, sympathetic to Western values, which they were, you know, clearly because they're fascists, they weren't interested in. Uh, and then when he, um, when he, when the Americans sort of defeated Japan and they occupied Japan for five years, Kurosawa was able to make films more like the way he wanted, but samurai films were banned. And the reason samurai films were banned was that they were seen as being a, um, you know, it was a risk that they would be used to kind of promote the, you know, the, the Almost old- propaganda. Yeah, exactly. The old kind of fascist uh, Japanese way of life, which they were trying to kind of detoxify modern life. And and th- I mean, they'd fought they'd fought wars over the samurai code. I mean, you know, wh- wh- what your, you know, I wouldn't take it as gospel. The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise film, but they did fight wars over who's, you know, which regime and which you know, you know, ideology should should control Japan. And Japan was trying to go back to being like a modern liberal democracy. You know. So it was only until the early 50s that you could do a samurai film. And the thing was, Kurosawa was interested in the samurai era, and he had absolutely no intention of doing his films as a uh, as a, a glorification of the samurai code, which is why in the film Seven Samurai, he talks about how, well, the samurai are all penniless because they were just hired killers for like the, the lords. So there's nothing in it for them, really. The farmers hate and fear the samurai because they just come and burn their village and sort of rape and pillage whenever they come round. Um, but it's either them or the bandits. And guess what? The bandits are running riot over the country because the samurais aren't doing anything. So the world that Kurosawa is building is one that's saying, this is medieval Japan. It wasn't very nice. You know, this well, samurai, it's, 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 it's very unglamorous. And the, the thing was, he was more interested in telling that story, I think, in, than in doing an action film. Do you see what I mean? And that's why he spent like, like almost an hour and 40 minutes before he, he gave him any action because I think what he was more interested in doing was a, telling a story of medieval life and because he because he told his story and 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 used so many you know pioneering film techniques and because the action at the end was so influential to other filmmakers it's gained this reputation that probably wasn't what kurosawa intended if you see what i mean 
No, I I love that shit. I'm a big history nerd, and I love that you know the it was set in like 1586 or something, um, or 1585. I can't remember what I, I read up on it, but I loved that. You know, samurais were it was seen as this kind of, you know, it wasn't as glamorous as you like they make it out to be, especially in the Last Samurai, where you know Tom Cruise is you know futting himself off at the thought of being a white samurai. But I enjoyed yeah. that. It was you know, people that they were seen as greedy, almost like the uh, Mystios of. Um, ancient greece were all mercenaries and you know they were quite brutal and it, it wasn't as glamorous as you might think being a, mm-hmm. a bounty hunter or being a you know a, a you know a, 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 a katana for hire i suppose but um that stuff was good and it was cool i didn't i i didn't hate it for stuff like that i wouldn't say i hated it in general i've not written off kurosawa i even said that maybe i'll enjoy his adaptations of you know macbeth which is that is thrown in blood one and rand's hamlet isn't it uh han is uh, ran is king lear king lear so i mean that that's an epic but i think he had i mean that was one of his last kind of you know films and i think the 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 battle scenes in that are absolutely breathtaking and i think the character performances because it's king lear it's the unraveling of, of a kingdom and a, and a and a king losing you know everything that he believed in i mean it's done in a very japanese style so you have to kind of you know you almost have to kind of adapt to what you're watching a little bit um, yeah, I mean the, the challenges with 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 um, Seven Samurai now, I think, are similar like the challenge of something like Citizen Kane now. Part of it is if you watch Citizen Kane, everyone goes, "Oh, it's brilliant! It's just so it's just amazing." That the, the opening scene where um, where he, where there's there's this tracking shot through the be- through the bedroom and then back out again. It's like that's been because it was so influential and because that film came out like so long ago. It, it it's it's almost meat and drink to even anyone with a passing knowledge of film now. Do you know what I mean? It's like there are no surprises, you know? Um, and what, like, like you said, you know, when you, you mentioned me, so you, you could do the story of Seven Samurai in 110 minutes. And in fact, A Bug's Life does that, doesn't it? I mean, it does the story of Seven Samurai in two hours. Yeah. And the thing was, Kurosawa was just intent on telling the story of those villages and the story of the samurai and setting up the geography and, there's, there's lots of interesting stuff about it. It was originally going to be six samurai, six samurai who were just the the samurai, but he said he thought the story wouldn't be lively enough unless there was like a the the, the Toshiro Mifune character who's more of a wild card. And the thing is, the wild card character is now a, an absolute mainstay of any ensemble, right? Of any kind of get the gang together, get the group together, whether it's a heist film, an action film, or anything else. But what passes for humor? What passes for you know characterization? Both for a Japanese audience in the 1950s and in, you know, the, the medieval f- picture that he's covering. I mean, I bet you weren't expecting to see so much of uh, Toshiro Mifune's bare ass in this film either, were you? But that's what um, he was wearing. He was wearing a piece of string between his butt crack and that was all he was wearing below the waist. And it was just, you know, it, it's just not, it, it's not tuned to what a modern audience is expecting to see. So three hours of it is probably going to be a bit wearing, isn't it? Yeah, it was it was just too long. I I don't I understand why people like this film, and I imagine people have a sort of sentimentality towards this film from um, you know when they first watched it when it came out, when they watched it more recently or closer to the time it was released. But when I when I was watching it, um, yeah, I just I I also think what didn't help was that I watched it in the middle of a five in a row five shifts in a row at work all morning shifts mm-hmm. so i'm pretty sure i'd been up since 3 45 that morning and i thought fuck me the podcasts uh, are getting filmed on the monday and the tuesday and i'm working till sunday i need to get this out of the way and yeah it wasn't it just, I, but also i i took it for what it was i i didn't like it 
for reasons that I think aren't unfair. If you know what I mean, I didn't. I, I went into it with an open mind, and I was actually looking forward to it. It just wasn't as badass as I wanted it to be for a film about samurai. Yeah, I, I know um, what you mean. And the thing, the thing is, is that samurai films now are again they're they're a genre in themselves, and action films now are a genre in themselves that have, have taken it, you know, taken it forward to a new way. I think. I think you get a lot more out of Yojimbo and and Hidden Fortress as a result of that. Yeah, I think, um, and, and I, to be honest, I think there's always a risk of that. Is that you know, it's once they've made a statue to somebody, it's it's hard to tell the story of the real person. And, and once a film is now the a, a film and a filmmaker is the the absolutely worshipped by the next generation of filmmakers, you know, Coppola, Scorsese, George Lucas, Stanley Kubrick, all of these people said that Kurosawa was the absolute pioneer for them. It's it, it's like when somebody becomes a national treasure, it's it's much harder for them to con, you know continue to be like a, a real a real human filmmaker. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Well, no, no. I think the 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 best thing to notice from this is that when I hate a film that I really didn't like, I usually get quite angry and sweary and pissed off at how bad a film was. Now, I don't. I've not got angry at this because I recognise that it's of its time. Whereas when we talk about Summer of Sam, yeah. That's yeah, well, what I'm going to get pissed uh, off. I'll, I'll save my comments on that one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the thing with Seven Samurai, for, for the for the benefit of the audience, who no doubt will be familiar with the film, or if not, they'll be very familiar with this storyline. Um, uh, Seven Samurai is about a farm which is beset by bandits. On you know, every year they lose their harvest, uh, and you know, the, you know, the women are, are snatched up and taken away. The men are killed. Uh, they've barely got enough food to live on because the the bandits are taking their crops. Um, despite this being like the feudal land of the samurai and the samurai and the, the the shogunates ruling over them, they're certainly doing nothing to protect them against the bandits. They've got to do something about it. So they go into into the nearest towns and see if they can find some samurais who are prepared to fight for food, yeah, because they can't give them money. And it turns out there are a bunch of samurai, or they're known as ronin. If a ronin is a samurai who doesn't have a master, but essentially they're samurai because the village becomes their master. Um and they do the usual getting the team together. They find a series of samurai who have fallen on hard times and will fight and risk their lives for food because these were the times. In this medieval era, as we've said, it wasn't really a particularly great time for anyone. So these samurai prepared to fight there. And um, they then they show you the band of, of samurai getting together, just as they do in The Magnificent Seven. Stagecoach, My Darling Clementine, Gunfight at the OK Corral, Avengers, they were expendable, Dirty Dozen. It's that dynamic of, of getting the team together. Um, and, you know, Toshiro Mifune was going to be the lead samurai, but in, instead he becomes the sort of slightly crazy thief who wants to be samurai and tags along, so they've got their wild card character. And then they, what they do is they get to the village and they teach the villagers to fight. They organize the villagers. They give them like they teach them how to make a spear out of a piece of wood. They put barricades up around the the village. They post lookouts so the bandits don't know they've got samurai helping them. And you get to know the people in the village. You get to know the samurai. Uh, one of the younger samurai falls in love with a, a girl in the village, and that's not accepted by the, the you know social mores. And they're all suspicious of the samurai anyway. Um, and then when you have the fight scenes at the end, you know the people involved and you also know the geography of the village. So when the horses start running through one side and everything else, everything I'm describing is well established. I mean, that's why John Carpenter usually has a really big tracking shot early on in his film, like for example, in The Thing. So now you know the entire geography of the Antarctic outpost where they are so that when the action happens later, you, you, you instantly understand what's going on. 
all of that is in there. It's just that, as we said, Akira Kurosawa wanted to make a, a historical epic about samurai life, so he felt that he could do it in three and a half hours. And it's very, very long. It's an hour and 40 minutes until there's any real action. So it, it takes a long time for you to get uh, to get to what you'd expect to see. I think in a modern film, there would have been a lot more action at the beginning. There would have been some sort of action part of the way through, so you'd get an idea of the stakes and the danger and see what some of the samurai are made of, You know what they're like, how they are in a fight. And then you'd have the big climax at the end, and you probably wouldn't have an hour. You wouldn't have an hour and a half battle at the end. You'd have a slightly shorter battle at the end and more action during the film. Um, and you know, so this was kind of like I say, it's a very pioneering template of the modern action film. And the problem is, you're watching something that has since been, in terms of plot structure, has been refined. And in terms of the, the story itself, I mean, no one's allowed to show any blood in 1954. So there's a lot of there's a lot of swipes of swords and people falling down dead. It's not, you know. Uh, Kurosawa himself and his battle scenes in Ram, they're a lot more bloody and they're a lot more kind of uh, uh, got a lot more power and impact in editing but it, it's still an absolute milestone of cinema. The problem with milestones of cinema is they're often more interesting from a historical or from a you know from a film, film geek's point of view than they are as straight entertainment if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I I just, th- I don't mind a build up to an action sequence, it's just this, this film was all the build-up and then all the action. I mean, that was, they, they didn't kind of they didn't mix it up at all, did they? Yeah, and I didn't even think the action was. Uh, yeah, I think the action was just a bit dated. I think they were limited. It's very they, very dated. I mean, one of the thing, um, one of the other one of the other um, uh, classics we are going to watch uh, in a future episode sometime is going to be Wages of Fear, which is a uh, about truckfuls of nitroglycerine that have to be driven across very dangerous territory to put out a fire. And one one false move, and the whole thing blows up. And that was made in the mid nineteen fifties. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how that suspense holds up, because you know, the editing and the sound and the intensity of films now is just very different, isn't it? Yeah. No. I, like I said, I only dislike this film partially because of I think my age and my tastes in film, and also the the, the when this film came out. But you know, it was it, it had its interesting points and had its good good moments. And I I. I only hated how long and boring I felt it was. I imagine if I'd watched it at a different time, it would have been very enjoyable. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, as we say, I think Seven Samurai is a film to watch uh, if you're interested in the history of film, if you're interested in, in samurai films, if you're interested in where it all started. I think anyone who, who's uh, like a geek about film, filmmakers, there's the, the original kind of screen swipe edit from scene to scene that George Lucas used in Star Wars comes from here. Uh, the battle scenes from Lord of the Rings are influenced by this. So it's one of those, it's one of those very influential films. And it, it's like, like I say, it's like, it's like, it's like seeing the, uh, the 1960 original car of, uh, of a, of a supercar that you like today. You have to, you know, it's not gonna, it's not going to go around corners as fast as its modern counterpart. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Completely agree. And now for the hidden gem feature, about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention, and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're looking at one of the most divisive films on our list, which people either love or hate. And not only did it split audiences down the middle when it was released in 1999, it split the double reel team down the middle as well. 
Episode 12's hidden gem is Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. So, as, as you can tell from some of the preliminary discussion ahead of this feature and the way I've introduced it, Summer of Sam is a film that I love uh, and James absolutely hated. Um, and we're going to have to get into that and why, you know, despite the number of people who hate it, I'm still defending this uh, as a great film. Um, and it's probably, we should perhaps start with with the background to this. We all know Spike Lee. He, he grew up in New York. Uh, he grew up in, he's about 63 years old. So he would have been around in the 70s, uh, you know, coming of age, as it were, when, when the events that he depicts in this film uh, were going to happen. He came to prominence in the 80s with his films with predominantly black uh, audiences, uh, sorry, black cast, and, and, you know, assume, you know, presumably aimed at, 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 at a, you know, a black audience, but I think he he wouldn't necessarily say he was only aiming at a black audience. Um, through the 90s, he, he his films got bigger and, and more attention from Malcolm X to Jungle Fever and so on, uh, and he closed the 90s with Summer of Sam. Now, Summer of Sam was made in the 90s, but it's set in the 70s. It's set in New York, uh, in the summer of 1977, uh, it, it opens and closes with uh, a sp- speeches by Jimmy Breslin, who was a, a, a reporter in New- a real life uh, in New York at the time. And it covers the events in which the son of Sam serial killer was uh, murdering uh, predominantly, you know, couples in, in, you know, courting couples in cars that were parked up uh, around New York City. Uh, that summer, it was also uh, there was a major heat wave, uh, which kind of led to a kind of it's like a combustible atmosphere in the city, and there was a, uh, a massive blackout in which there was rioting and looting under under cover of darkness. There was a lot of social uh, dislocation in New York at the time. There was a lot of uh, joblessness, homelessness. The city was kind of falling apart. Crime was at an all time high. The state of the city was pretty grim. Uh, a lot of traditional New York neighborhoods in places like the Bronx and you know. You know Harlem. If you're going to go to the you know one of the black areas, um, we're kind of losing what they had before. And at the same time, despite all this, uh, New York was an interesting place for culture. I mean, punk was happening. Disco was already at its height. There are a lot of uh, New York filmmakers that were making New York an interesting place to be. So there's this kind of contrast between the culture that that's rising up out of the city and the kind of almost cesspit that the city's become. And in the midst of all this, uh, the New York Yankees were on on a run to their first ever World Series in the baseball. So, uh, what Spike Lee is doing here is he's trying to make his his definitive New York film uh, about neighborhoods, and it's it's notable for this having been a, a predominantly white uh, cast. All, all the characters in it are white; they're mostly Italian American uh, in the Bronx, um, and it, it's about how that that neighborhood responds to the cultural changes, the social changes that are going through, the paranoia around a serial killer, you know, killing people in their neighborhood uh, and the way their lives unravel and the way they, you know, have, have a go at each other and, and, and how that as a backdrop to the, the real events that were happening in New York at the time. So that's where it comes from. And it's, uh, it's quite sexually explicit. There's a lot of foul language. There's a lot of um, uh quite extremes of behavior. It was written by Michael Imperioli, who people remember from The Sopranos. Um, he, he has a small part in it, and Spike Lee took it and 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 decided to do a film, you know, one of his ensemble films set in New York, but with with a white um, cast of characters instead. So that's the backdrop. Um, so why don't, I, why don't I open the floor to you, um, James, and tell me how you responded to this film, because it was my recommendation to, to make you sit through this. It was just fucking shit. 
<laughs> it was just fucking shit. You've said everything that happened in the film and it was still fucking shit. I didn't understand the fucking point of this film. It was meant to be this kind of New York film, a swan song to New York. Why the fuck is there so much shagging and swinging going on? What the fuck? It was just... Why Why are we making this about David Berkowitz and, you know, the murders that he committed and then just have a lot John Leguizamo pumping heaps of people and then his missus pumping someone else and John Leguizamo not liking that and then uh, Adrian Brody's character, I can't remember his name because it's... The film was fucking boring, and I didn't engage with it. He's now shagging people, and now he's oh, and now he's shagging a guy in the bathroom, and now he's shagging his missus. But he's kind of reluctant to shag his missus because he's been shagging guys, and you think he might be gay. And now he's hitting a fucking glass over the back of his head because he's a little bit punk and a little bit mental. It was fucking shit. It was crap. And the thing that pissed me off more than anything was the liberal use of the word "dago," which I believe is an uh, insulting t- racial term towards people that are of you know Italian American descent. Now Spike Lee can go and fuck himself for the amount of times he's fallen out with Quentin Tarantino for. Uh, using the n-word because Tarantino was using the n-word because he wanted his scripts to be accurate so Spike Lee's used the word Dago here because he wanted his script to be fucking accurate and tell the story appropriately because he's showing it about Italian-American people who probably call each other Dago and white people or people who aren't Italian-Americans would be calling them Dagos as well but it's fine for Spike Lee to do it but it's not fine for Quentin Tarantino to do it go and fuck yourself Spike Lee for one making such a shit film which is basically apparently about the summer of Sam and the you know the murders by David Berkowitz interspersed with a lot of fucking shagging it was boring it was shit and I'm you know I'm glad I'm never having to watch this pile of arse again so uh, as you can see James is cool. the fan now Nonetheless, uh, you know, look, we've we've done, you know, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, and, and we understand why, you know, a modern audience might not take to it. We did Dark City last last month, and you know, I had to acknowledge that it might not might not be to everyone's taste. And I totally acknowledge that Summer of Sam inspires exactly the kind of response that James has given to it. A lot of people hated this film when it came out. A lot of people who watched this film absolutely hated for all the reasons that James has described. And look, it's a valid response, you know. Jay, you know, you, you, you know, you've listened to James enough times in the podcast to know that he's an open-minded person who watches films, and he'll come down and sort of like not, not not liking it based on a, his own honest opinion of of watching a film. I, on the other hand, I, I I will die on this hill. I believe that Summer of Sam is one of the best films of the '90s. I believe that this is Spike Lee's best film. Um, I take the point that Spike Lee's got no business having a go at Tarantino using the N word in the vast majority of cases in its proper context uh, in his films, if he's then going to use uh, a word like Dago in, in an almost identical context uh, and with the same intentions in his film. So chalk that one up to, to, to Tarantino. Yeah, I, th- I, I, you know, I agree. I think Spike Lee let himself down on that one. Having said that, I think his, his you know, while he has a blind spot for having a go at, at a white person using the N-word, I think Spike Lee's, you know, use of, slang and and the way he characterizes people in this film is spot on and for all the for all the reasons that james hates the film are almost all the reasons why i love it i mean i I will go as far as saying that this film is in the tradition of fellini's amicord as a an absolutely masterful depiction of uh, people and places in the midst of extraordinary circumstances and the, the evocation of a time and a place i think it tells you a story of new york uh, and of the 70s, where a lot of people, especially in the 90s, the 70s was like a disco, like a retro disco no- nostalgia thing. You'd put on a wig and a pair of flares and go to kind of, you know, uh, car wash club nights and all the 70s. Oh, wasn't the 70s great? 70s weren't great. You had blackouts, you had unemployment, you had racism, you had, um, you know, a lot of bigotry about various social things. You had homophobia. And and this is this is laid out. And and I, I think the characterizations 
I agree the characterization will be problematic for a lot of people because John Leguizamo's character, Vinny, is a very unsympathetic character. He's a product of his environment in that he's been brought up with a very kind of, uh, ca- you know, uh, traditional Catholic, uh, you know, basically his head's been messed up by to do with sex and, you know, right and wrong because of this very, you know, frankly backward way that he's been brought up in church, you know, and, and you know, right and wrong is, is one thing. And then you can be, you know, savagely beaten by your vicar as well and it, or priest, whatever they call it. Um, and now he's got problems in his life because he's, he almost he's almost got this compulsion to have kind of exactly the kind of sex that he was warned not to have you know by the by the catholic church but uh he's because of his upbringing with the catholic church he doesn't think he can have that sex with his wife there's got to be some sort of purity to his relationship with his wife so in his mind that justifies him going off and shagging but he's an asshole because he's shagging loads of other women and he's a, a quite an unpleasant character and richie adrian brody's character he's if you want to, if you want to give it a reference, at the end of Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta's character in a film, you know, set in nineteen seventy seven, he um, he moves out of the you know the the Italian American neighborhood and goes to the big city, goes to Manhattan to make his fortune, and in that story he makes it, and in this story, uh, this character comes home because he hasn't made it because most people who would dream with dreams of being a star don't make it, and in New York at the time, how is he going to be a star? Is, is he, he thinks he's going to be a musician. He's not a very good musician, but he he forms a punk band and they're not very good. And it's he's all about the pose, uh, and you know he, he's uh, because he's kind of a little bit confused about his sexuality. He gets opportunities to be a male stripper and to do porn, and in his head that's a form of stardom. But he's not happy either. And the, there is, an, I think, a brilliant, you know, brilliant scene after scene where the, these traditional Italian American neighborhoods were falling apart by this time. They've been hollowed out. There were no jobs. Their traditional industries and community spirit were kind of worn down. The the mafia guy's still living in a big house, but half of those people have got no jobs. They're standing around behind the sign that says "dead end," you know, and where they're living is a dead end in in, in more ways than one. And and right at this moment, where they're kind of look, casting around for something to kind of blame for their problems there's there's the disco scene and the punk scene and there's like new and different people that they don't feel comfortable with taking over their city and there's this pulse to the film new york is an absolute kind of festering throbbing bundle of energy where you know the the different mu- musical and cultural scenes are all you know crashing over each other and and some of those people are just you know sheep following a different crowd and some of those people are you know are successful and are stars at studio 54 and in the midst of this, a serial killer who's almost a product of the of the horror that New York has become. Again, this is set one year after Taxi Driver, which is a film about the horror of New York. Um, you know, the worst side of New York is it becomes like a breeding ground for psychopaths with guns. And Summer of Sam was the real life psychopath with a gun. And he was almost, rather than talk about the... Uh, you know, the psychosis, it's almost like it was almost inevitable that someone like this would spring up in New York and start shooting people and make the people of New York paranoid and talk and turn on each other. Uh, and at the end, there's just this really fascinating kind of montage. which almost says, despite all this, we do say by, you know, 20 years later, New York's a, a much better place and it's moved on. And a, a lot of those neighborhoods have like been, uh, been regenerated. And it's almost like looking back at that worst time and kind of trying to kill the nostalgia for it remembering it and being compelled by that amazing time in the 70s but knowing that actually i wouldn't have wanted to live there at that time it was fucking horrible and the people were bloody nasty the problem is always going to be that in a film where so many of the characters are so unsympathetic i mean really i felt some sympathy for mira Savino's character and jennifer esposito's character and a little bit of sympathy for richie even though he's a, a dick in many ways 
the, a lot of the characters are just unsympathetic, but you understand why they are how they are. And I, I honestly, I think this puts Spike Lee at, up there in a bracket of like a classic New York filmmaker up there with Martin Scorsese and Sidney, Sidney Lumet. I think this film brings to life an absolutely stunningly you know, contradictory era of New York in such a vivid way. And I was, and every time I watch this film, I'm just so energized by it. And as I completely understand why you would be repelled and repulsed by this film, because I don't think the film is intended to be anything other than repellent and repulsive. It's just, I think Spike Lee was trying and in my opinion succeeded in, in making a film that all the while it's, it's, it's portraying these repellent and repulsive situations. It makes it so compelling and it, and it kind of tells the story of why New York, even, even at its worst time was seen as a center of the world even at its absolute worst. And this is probably New York at its worst. And I thought it was fascinating that Spike Lee was able to make such a such a thrilling, I thought, film about New York at its probably at one of its lowest points. And that's my counterpoint to James's dislike of the film. I, I wouldn't call it a counterpoint. You're saying what you liked about the film. But when you talk about what you dis- what I dislike about the film, it's got fuck all to do with the killers, of da- the, the, the murders by David Berkowitz. Like I get, he's trying to show New York, but it's called Summer of Sam. It's yeah, I mean the Summer the, the, of the, Sam. So it's about the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, who went around with his forty-four caliber shooting people. Okay, why is it John Leguizamo shagging for two and a half hours? Why is it John Leguizamo, you know, being a cunt for two and a half hours? Why is it this? Why? Why, why is it not about David Berkowitz? It should have been called So Much Shagging. It gave the Italians Lumdago. <laughs> that's how fucking shit this film was. It was that's the the, the completely incorrect title. Also, Lumdago. I'm quite proud of that one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's the, the thing is, it, it is a case of if you tuned into this film to find out about the Son of Sam murders, you would see the murders portrayed, and you would see some of the Son of Sam's kind of psychosis portrayed, but it was much more used as a backdrop. It was it was how the the serial killer like affected uh, a neighborhood in the Bronx more than anything. So but again, it doesn't it's, do that. It doesn't do that though. In the film, there's like one moment where John Leguizamo and his missus are having a fallout in the car, and she he tells her to get out, even though it's her car. So he ends up getting kicked out of the car, and that was the only moment I went, "There's a killer on the loose, guys." That was the only moment I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, cool." It's, but apart from showing the actual killings and that big fat guy who doesn't even look like David Berkowitz, if you want to see someone who looks like David Berkowitz, watch Mindhunter on Netflix because it actually shows you what serial killers were like, and it's actually about serial killers. I'm like clickbaiting a title uh, like Summer of Sam. I think Spike Lee is has made some really good films, but the guy falls out with people for things that he's doing in this film, and he falls out with directors like Quentin Tarantino and Clint Eastwood all the time for certain things about race, and then does it himself in these films. And I think he just falls out with these directors because those directors are inherently better than him and make inherently better films than him. And he's just jealous. And that's why he falls out with them. Tarantino is a white guy making a film that uses the N-word quite a lot. And it gets lots of awards and it gets lots of plaudits. Therefore, I'm going to kick up a fuss about it. But I'm going to use the word Dago in this film that's not even about David Berkowitz. And more to the point, you're, you're saying this is one of the best films of the 90s. So if you were to pick a top 10, even top 20, top 30 best films of the 90s, Summer of Sam gets in there. So, say, top, Absolutely, top, it gets in my top 10. 10. It's top ten. It's not even Gets his best. In my top ten. It's not even his best film of the nineties. So you're saying it's better than Pulp Fiction. It's better than Jackie Brown. It's better than Goodfellas. It's better than Fight Club. It's better than The Shawshank Redemption. It's better than The Big Lebowski. It's better than The Green Mile. It's better than Misery. It's better than The Matrix. It's better than Seven. Schindler's List. Saving Private Ryan. The Usual Suspects. The Silence of the Lambs. 
Do I need to go on? There's no. I, way I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No I mean, I wouldn't make it the, the the best film of the '90s, but it would be in my top ten. I think uh, this is an absolutely stunning film. I look, <laughs> I, 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 look, I get it. The 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 visceral hatred of this film is you are you are not alone in responding to the film this way. It's 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 an incredibly divisive film. Some people have taken exactly the response you've taken to this film for exactly the reasons you've given. And nonetheless, for all the reasons I've given, I think this film is an absolute masterpiece. There, there are three Tarantino films that you would be picking over that, though, surely. You'd be picking Pulp Fiction over that for your top ten films. I would, I would pick Jackie Brown over this. I wouldn't pick Pulp Fiction over this. Really? No way. And what about, what about American History X? Come on. Don't be silly. Come on. I, I I genuinely put this film right up there in my in my no. top ten. <laughs> no, you're nah, you're at it. There's no no chance, really. It's yeah, not even I really the best film of the nineties. Malcolm X is much better than this. Like, like I said, we are going to have to agree to disagree. I remember <laughs> I remember seeing this at the time, and I remember being absolutely blown away and energized by this film from beginning to end. I think it's an Good absolutely fellas, masterful piece of work. Good fellas. The, the the degree to which someone who doesn't like Summer of Sam would, would would hate it, yeah, because all the things that are, you know this film, yeah, the film has repellent characters. It has people having all kinds of sex. It has John Leguizamo wallowing in all kinds of of shit when there's a serial killer on the loose and doesn't really think that much about the serial killer that's on the loose. If you're if you're going to be um, if you're going to buy into that film and love it, you will absolutely love it. And if you're going to hate it, you're going to completely hate it. There are very few people who are like, mm, okay, about this film. It is You either love it or you hate it. And I love it. That's top 10. Top 10 in the 90s. The 90s. Now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. There are various reasons why film projects fail to materialise, as we've covered on previous episodes. This month we're looking at a project that was affected by external circumstances both in the film industry and in the wider world. The One That Got Away for episode 12 is Ridley Scott's Tripoli. So James, I'm not sure how much you were aware of this before I said we we're going to do it for the podcast, or whether you've been able to find much out about it uh, since we uh, since we set up for the feature. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that uh, Ridley Scott was actually trying to make a film um, about, or, or tried to make a film um, about Tripoli. Yeah, so the, the backdrop to this is that in about the year 2000, uh, William Monaghan, who went on to win uh, a screenwriting Oscar for The Departed, I think, uh, was breaking into the film industry. And what broke him into the film industry was a spec script, which is a script that someone writes, uh, you know, not because anyone's paid them to do it, but to try and, you know, get break into Hollywood somehow. Uh, and he wrote Tripoli. And he sold this round, and it actually scared up some interest. People were saying, this is a really good script, see if we can get anyone to do it. Uh, and Ridley Scott was interested in doing it. When they actually met up in the early 2000s, Ridley Scott was coming quite hot off the back of Gladiator and Black Hawk Down. I think Ridley Scott had um, – uh, he'd hit kind of a bit of a career peak, actually. I mean, you know, Blade Runner's his best film. 
Uh, and, you know, Blade Runner was on the back of kind of, you know, the duelists and, and alien and probably seen as his most creative era. But this particular time of, of, of Ridley Scott's is probably the best balance of his actual form in terms of the quality of the films he was making and the success he was getting for the films he was making. So Ridley Scott's red hot at this moment. Ridley Scott wanted to do a historical epic. He actually wanted to do something about knights, you know, medieval knights. Um, but he met William Monaghan, and Monaghan said, look, I haven't got a film about Medieval Knights, but I do have a historical epic, which right up your street, and I think you really like it. And Scott absolutely loved it, so they s- decided they would do it. So 2002, uh, it was announced that uh, Ridley Scott is committed to next direct William Monaghan's historical drama, Tripoli. Um, so it was going to be it was targeting being one of the next films that he did after uh, Black Hawk Down. I think it probably would have had to have come out after Matchstick Men, which he did next. It takes a long time to schedule these films, especially the big ones. And um, what it was was that it was the story of a guy called William Eaton. He was an American kind of uh, diplomat stroke, businessman stroke politician who um, who responded to the, the shipping crisis in, uh, around North Africa by saying that they should uh, uh, enter into regime regime change in Tripoli. Tripoli was almost like an autonomous territory of the Ottoman Empire. It's now known as Libya. And everything that you see Somali pirates doing today, Tripoli Libyan pirates were doing back then. They were um, attacking ships, um, taking the you know taking hostages, taking the 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 the, the cargo of those ships and selling it. And they were essentially blackmailing other countries. You had to pay tribute to Tripoli to. Um, uh, to avoid the pirates uh, attacking your ships. And the Americans weren't keen on this. They wanted to be able to just sail around undisturbed. They were very big on, they were a relatively new country at this time and looking to kind of grow and develop through international trade. Uh, and, and Eaton said to the, the President Jefferson, there's only one way we're going to do this and we're going to have to have, a, you know, we're going to have to flex our muscles for the first time as a country uh, and attack the 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 leader of the country of Tripoli, the, the Sultan of the Pasha of Tripoli, um, uh, and, and top them from the throne and show them that we're not to be messed with. Uh, and he used uh, Presley O'Bannon and a, a small team of Marines, and they they launched a kind of an unsanctioned, they, weren't in, they didn't 100% have the permission of the American government to do this on Tripoli to depose the ruler of Tripoli and put his brother in, in place, getting involved in the politics of the region. Um, to try and uh, protect American trade. And this was seen as a, it's, it's a first moment that America attempts any aggressive foreign policy in their history. This is like the a- 1807, and it's, it's, it's you, know, uh, mil- you know, American military, you know, fighting on foreign soil. They were probably the good guys in this, in, in a sense that, you know, their ships had the ro- should have had the right to just sail around wherever they wanted. The problem is you get into the Middle East and you're getting into essentially a dispute between the Ottoman Empire and, and Tripoli and the, the southern European states and, and you're mixed up in some murky geopolitics. And this guy said, fuck it, we're going to topple this guy, we're going to put his brother on the throne and then we're going to do things our way. And I think that's always going to be an interesting film to do with a, a historical context, isn't it? Because bear in mind, this film is going to come out just after the Americans have invaded Iraq for the second time. So there's going to be an interesting historical counterpoint to... Um, to, to the film that, that, that gets made to, to actual events at the time. Um, in the end, it, the, the principal reason it didn't get made was because uh, uh, Ridley Scott wanted to work with Russell Crowe again, and Russell Crowe was already... He, he signed on to do this film, but while they were trying to get this film made, Russell Crowe was also signed on to do Master and Commander, that uh, sort of naval epic drama that he did. And the executives in their wisdom decided there was only r- one room for... 
a historical epic with ships in it and Russell Crowe in the lead. Uh, and Master and Commander is already further down the track and um, had possibility of a franchise because it was one of a series of books. So they told Ridley Scott they weren't going to give him the money to do Tripoli and, and it fell apart. And Ridley Scott and Monaghan went on to do Kingdom of Heaven instead, the uh, the Crusades drama. So it, it's really a film that kind of fell apart. I mean, partly what I've just described there is because the studio just decided they weren't going to put the money into it because the, you know they felt that it, they would, it would be too crowded with historical epics at the same time. I wonder also if there was a bit of a, perhaps it wasn't the right time to do a story about um, American adventures in the Middle East because of the, you know, because of the times, but uh, you know, whatever, whatever the reason they ended up not getting to make this film for all of those reasons. No, that does sound um, like that seems like it's right up Ridley Scott's uh, street. And I think like with most of the ones that got away, I think it sounds, it's uh, sounds like it would have been a really good film and it's disappointing that it didn't get made. Um, I don't think we've actually had a, a re not a remake hate watch. Uh, the one that got away that's uh, been like, ah, oh, no, I don't know if I'd fancied that. They've all been really promising projects and unfortunately they haven't been realised. Yeah, and I mean, the, th- the thing that's interesting about it is that uh, this, 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 this worry in my mind that it would have been seen as a, let's do a story about the Americans being the good guys, you know, and, and protecting their shipping by, you know, toppling a Middle East uh, leader. Um, there was always a risk that this would be seen as Ridley Scott kind of crudely supporting American foreign policy because everyone involved in this is kind of seen in American history as, as something of a hero. William Heaton was, you know, history records that, you know, that, you know, it was a victory and it was an important diplomatic step forward for, um, for America. And, you know, that the U S Marines sing about the shores of Tripoli in their, in their war song, you know, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli because of the Marine involvement in this. So there would have been a worry that, do we really want to see a film that's that, that shows American, you know, regime change in the Middle East uh, and the Americans are the good guys? Is you know, it, having said that, I don't think Ridley Scott would have made that movie. I don't think William Monaghan would have made that movie either. It would have they would have had much more nuance to it. When you look at the other films that that Ridley Scott's made, you know, w- w- that were historical films, uh, th- I don't think there's any way that this would have been a just a flag waving American film. I just don't see it because you know, in the end, William Eaton it wasn't that much of a victory. I don't want to spoil the story, but you can read it on Wikipedia. They didn't manage to topple the old Pasha and the Americans still ended up paying a ransom for kidnapped, uh, you know, American seamen. And they still ended up paying to, to pass through the sea, but, but it did kind of let people realize, Oh, bloody hell, the Americans, they're not kidding around. We, we, you know, we, we better let their ships through kind of thing. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a, uh, a very qualified victory and William Eaton didn't get much of a hero's welcome when he got home. So there's all sorts of interesting backdrops to it. You know, the guy who did Black Hawk Down and the guy who did 1492, which doesn't, you know, doesn't sing the praises of like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the conquest of the new world. I just don't see, you know, Ridley Scott making a, a totally pro America film in this way. I think it would have been interesting. I wonder though, if the, the, the time that it came out would have, it would have just been too hot. Because it's not going to satisfy everyone. You'd have had all the right wingers in America kind of queuing up to say, "Oh, here we go, some, you know, some foreign liberal, you know, criticizing America when we're at war. How dare he?" And you'd have the left in America going, "Oh, look at him. He's, you know, he kind of says that William Eaton was right to do what he did. What a fascist!" I don't think he would have satisfied anyone if he'd made the film then. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Could you imagine that that it was in 2012? It was a uh, talks of it. You know, no, I read an article from 2012 saying that it was one that got away, and you know whispers that it was going to start again but could you imagine if they'd done it then when 
the US government helped ISIS overthrow Muammar, uh, what's his name? Muammar, how do you pronounce it? Gaddafi. They threw Gaddafi, it overthrow Gaddafi yeah. and then gave ISIS a lot of weapons and guns and then ISIS started using those guns on civilians and the US army. Could you imagine mm-hmm. if he tried to release it then? Yeah. Um, but but I think it'd be interesting now. I mean, the, the rights have reverted to Monaghan because he wrote the script and I'm not sure if Ridley Scott is still interested in making this film. Um, but the film could still get made if Monaghan sells the script to somebody or Scott jumps back on board. Um, and I think it would be interesting to do it now because I think there's been such prominence attached to American foreign policy for 20 years now that it would be very easy to, to show a, an attempt at, a, at regime change. And with that historical context, you would look at it and you could make the film and say, yeah, maybe that maybe this isn't wise. Maybe we're dabbling in things we don't understand, and that and the and the contemporary audience could go, yeah, maybe you are. Do you know what I mean? I think it'd be, I think it's an easier sell now. Actually, I think you could make this film now, and all of that learning from what happened with ISIS, and learning what happened in the Arab Spring, and learning, you know, about the longer term consequences of Iraq and Afghanistan. I think there's a, I think it'd be a lot easier to just tell this story on its own terms, and people would get it. If you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I understand. It's a shame. I think the the, your, the political timing would have been a bit difficult to get this film made, and obviously the actual schedule timing of uh, Russell Crowe um, doing what he was doing makes it difficult. But no, uh, I mean, and like like you say, I mean, it's an interesting story, and I would like to see it if anyone makes it. I mean, they did do a film called Tripoli way back in the day in the fifties. Um, I don't imagine it's aged very well, um, but you know. The, the right people making it now, I think, would have, would be interesting. I think it was probably the right thing that it didn't get made and that the people involved in making it made Kingdom of Heaven instead. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen Kingdom of Heaven and what you think of it, but I think that's a terrific film, especially the director's cut. The Orlando th- Bloom one? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I couldn't Ol- be arsed with it. Orlando Bloom is not the right person to lead the film, yeah. um, but I think it tells a terrific story, and I think... I think it ended up, there's just enough historical distance for Ridley Scott to get away with it, but he made a film about the Crusades and a film about the Crusades where the Arabs or the, the, the Islamic kind of side of the battle are not nearly as bad as they're being made out, yeah? Uh, and in which the the, 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 the the politics of the wider world is, is doing terrible damage to the ordinary people in an area. And he managed to sneak that under the, air, under the radar in a historical epic as he set it in the 12th century. And I think it was probably a much better perspective for Ridley Scott to provide in a historical epic in 2005 to do Kingdom of Heaven than to do Tripoli. I think it works better to, to do that. Um, I, you know, I personally think that the director's cut of, of Kingdom of Heaven is an absolutely brilliant film. It's probably, you know, really Scott's lost masterpiece. But isn't it interesting? They, I'm sure they went with Orlando Bloom because he was a big name after, um, uh, after Pirates of the Caribbean, right? But he's a bit lightweight for the role. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been interesting, though, if you look at that, if we're going to talk about one that got a weight, Ridley Scott knew Orlando Bloom from Black Hawk Down, young British actor in his film doing Black Hawk Down. Guess which other young English actor in Black Hawk Down was in there that, that he could have given that film to instead? Oh, shit, no, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. Uh, Black Hawk Down. Oh, it's... Just go through the cast list and, and look at a young actor from that era who would perhaps have no, been wanna, a better I want to guess if they were actually looking at it. Uh, not Josh Hartnett. <laughs> not Ewan McGregor. No... Uh, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Wouldn't that have been an interesting alternative history of film that Tom Hardy in his kind of mid to late 20s, because he didn't really break through till Inception, right, when he's in his early 30s. But imagine someone giving Tom Hardy a meaty role to really sink his teeth into at at the head of a big film like that 
and what he could have done with that role that Orlando Bloom, as good as he actually is in Kingdom of Heaven, just could not have done. Yeah, no, I love a bit of Tom Hardy. I think he's a very, very good actor. I think that would have been really interesting to see him kind of sink his teeth into that opportunity. But there you go. That's uh, that, uh, There's probably not enough material for a one that got away Tom Hardy's Kingdom of Heaven. So we've just done that for you as a bonus. Nice. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film they should have left well alone. This month we're looking at not one, but many remakes as the world's largest entertainment company has been bombarding the audience these past few years. The remake Hate Watch for episode 12 is on Disney's new live-action versions of their own animated classics. So, James, why don't you tell the audience, I mean, it's a pretty simple concept, but let, let's walk through it. Um, yeah, and we were thinking, oh, what could be our remake our remake Hate Watch? What could be the, the thing to talk about? And we just thought, well, why don't we just get this big one out of the way? Because it's been an ongoing, you know, virus that's just kind of infected the film community where it's they've just they're doing the exact same films it's the exact same film but it's yeah, just it's, live action it's just so did it's, it start with did it start with jungle book was that the first yeah, one they I did went, i mean i, I suppose they see. did they did 101 dalmatians back in the 90s but that was then there was a big gap and they started churning them out didn't they yeah, so they did that one. They did Beauty and the Beast. They did... I can't remember the order they did them in. They did Lion King. And it it was... It was it was the same film. Like, Jungle Book was a, a carbon copy of the same film. And so was Lion King. Apart from one song, it was... You know, they, they didn't change anything from the animated version. So... Yeah, so Jungle Book I quite liked actually. I thought they went back to the source material a bit, and I thought it, 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 it seemed it to work same, quite it well. Was the same it, film, was, it was pretty much the same film. With, with, um, yeah. I mean, it's. I guess I, the way I'd look at that remake is that it's completely unnecessary, and it's if they'd just done that one, I probably wouldn't have minded. Do you know what I mean? But then they just started really sort of just banging them out. Dumbo, Aladdin, directed by Guy Ritchie, which would only have been good if they'd got fucking Vinnie Jones to play the genie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, the, I mean, the Lion King I watched, I mean, that's just David Attenborough on acid. It's like, yeah, and then they've done Lady in the Tramp, they've done Mulan. Yeah, they, um, haven't, they haven't released Lady in the Tramp yet, have they? But it's on its way. No, it's uh, it's on Disney Plus. Oh, it's on Disney Plus. Is it? I've missed that one. I didn't realize that had come out already. Uh, let me look for it. I think it must be. Oh yeah, it's a Disney Plus only release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely missed that. Why is Disney Plus so fucking hard to use? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't. I didn't even like the original Lady in the Tramp, so it's a bit of a shit story. Yeah, the, the there was a sort of a slow decline in Disney animation quality, and the Jungle Book was the last really good one. Uh, and it sort of it was shit for a long time, really, until Little Mermaid kind of put them back up the top level. 
Yeah, so I've just. I mean, I watched. I, I watched I've, probably Mulan first of all, and I just thought Mulan, Mulan was, was the one. Mulan. Mulan was the one that they actually tried to make it a little bit different. Apparently, I've not watched it because I couldn't be asked. I watched the first ten minutes, and I'm like, this is nothing like the original. It is though. quite different from the, the original. I mean, the, the problem. The problem with Mulan is, is that I don't think. I don't think it would have worked for them to just do a shop show remake of the first one with songs. I think they tried that for the other ones. They tried about Aladdin, and it was, it was pants. With Mulan, they tried to do something different, but the something different they did wasn't really very interesting either. It's really quite turgid. It's not got any of the fun of the original, and it hasn't really got the drama of the original either. I mean, the original Mulan's actually a really good film. It's got songs, and it's got kind of slapstick, and Eddie Murphy essentially doing his version of, of you know, that, that kind of psychic character that Robin Williams did with the, with the genie and Aladdin. Robin, uh, Eddie Murphy does his bit and he, he's terrific, but it's quite dramatic. You know, the, the China could fall, you know, Mulan's got to save them. It's really, it's actually a really exciting film as well. And it doesn't do either. It's not got the fun. It's not got the drama. It's almost like it's trying to be a, like a light kid friendly version of big historical epics like Crouching Tiger or House of Flying Daggers, but it's nothing like as good as any of those. And and it yeah. and it's a shame because th- this story's been it's similar to, you know, when we watched the remake of Karate Kid, and we probably said, you know, they probably would have been better to just try and do something completely different with the broad scenario of a kid moving to China. I think if they tried to do a new historical epic about a, a famous woman from Chinese history that wasn't Mulan, I think I'd have enjoyed it better. And there are a few. There's a woman called Ping Yang who led an army of seventy thousand soldiers, and there was a woman called Wu Zetian who was an actual emperor you know she wasn't married to the emperor she was the emperor and murdered and backstabbed her way to power so you could this was just like they spent 200 million dollars doing a much less fun version of a film that was perfectly good the first time it's like yeah whatever man no i I mean i couldn't say it's it's rubbish it was all well done and you know jet lee is you know not, not that he's in it much and donnie yen not that he's in it much they're always good to watch but god so what the whole thing was really so what um, Beauty and the Beast is shot for shot. Yeah, I think is I uh, the films themselves aren't shit because they are almost they are carbon copies of the films that were released in the nineties and the eighties mm-hmm. and all that. They're they're the same films, but the problem I have with it isn't anything to do with the actual. I don't actually hate the film itself. I hate the concept. It's a cash grab. It's Disney are just thinking, well, we can make a lot of money if we get people to watch Lion King live action again. We'll get Beyonce to play one of the characters. Okay, sweet. Lots of money. You know, that's the that's the reason they're doing it. It's the same reason they made the Star Wars films. Nobody, yeah, nobody and, gave and, a shit about seven, eight and nine in the Star Wars uh, in the Skywalker saga. Nobody gave a shit. And they ended up being shit films, but they made like three and a half billion. But yeah, no one no one no one making no, those films cared that, enough yeah. about telling the story. No, I I, I agree. And the, the reason they're doing it, in my opinion, the reason they're doing a cash grab with these is that a lot of their attempts at original um uh content have failed. I mean we talked about this on a previous podcast or or I mean I I did on a on, on a one that got away about um, David Fincher was going to do his version of Captain Nemo, and yeah. and they they bottled out of doing it, and you know and wouldn't give him the money to do it because previous things they tried to do had died on their ass. Their version of the Lone Ranger, they tried to bring back a, a version of Treasure Planet, and they, they've done a number of kind of new stories which have failed at a cost of large amounts of money. That John Carter, that you know that cost two hundred, you know lost cost them two hundred million. Not just the cost of making it, they lost two hundred million on the total cost of the production. I just don't think. I think they've lost their nerve with new stories. Yeah, um, I think. I mean, I've, I've got I've got a stat here. They um, 
in in 2019, they did not have a single kind of kids' film release, like a flagship film release that was a new story. There was There's an animated film from Fox, which is on the Disney list because they own that studio now, but it's not a main Disney release. It's like it's the Spies in Disguise. But in 2019, all of their big films, and they released quite a few, they were all remakes or sequels. Yeah. So not, one, not one new story among their flagships. And the, the last time they did a like a new animation now is something like maybe Moana, and that's like four or five years ago now. They did Frozen 2. Yeah, so. but that's a, it's, a, it's a sequel, though, isn't it? It's, you oh, know, I the, suppose, the, yeah. No, no new stories. And it's just, I, I, I think, for all that they are the biggest entertainment company in the world right now, you know, they are dependent on Pixar to keep doing new films, yeah? Um, you know, which is essentially a studio that they have bought. Marvel to keep doing films, which is a studio they have kind of acquired. Disney itself doesn't seem to be able to do what it used to do anymore with these films. Yeah, uh, I mean, they've got so much money from, you know, the, the Marvel stuff. They've got so much money from Star Wars and the Star Wars series. You'd think they could just bite the bullet. And th- what I will say is that these films that they've been remaking have been to a relatively good standard. They've been polished. They've been they've obviously been the same films, but, you know, they could still bomb with that. I mean, the, the live-action adaptations of the 101 Dalmatians were fucking shit. So, no, I don't think I've seen either of them all the way through. Um, so, you know, th- just bite the bullet and give us something interesting. Um <clears throat> I mean, what, what I would say about these, I mean, I agree with you. They're all, they're all well done by people who know how to make a film. I think I find them to be really quite flat. And the reason for that is that, you know, not that I'm the type to sit and watch, you know, a Disney animation for myself, you know, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a kid, but I do watch the good ones and enjoy them. The thing is that, you know, the, a traditional animation film, whether it's like the old hand drawn or, you know, modern, uh, you know, mixture of computer, etc., animation, the Pixar and things like Big Hero 6 and stuff like that. The animation is able to do like really quite striking things with, with the visuals. Even something as simple as Beauty and the Beast, you know, when like the, 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 the horse and carriage gets, gets out of control and, and, and drags Beauty or drags Belle to the, the gates of the, of the castle. Yeah. That's done in a, in a thunderstorm through a forest where they're going around corners on a precipice and the, and the carriage goes onto two wheels and it's got this snap and bite and zip to it. Or um, or um, Robin Williams talking 10 to the dozen and they animate everything that he's saying and the animation's got to go as fast as what as what, what Robin Williams is saying. These live-action remakes, they just they kind of flatten everything out and it doesn't have the same zip to it. You know, Aladdin was like, okay, but Will Smith is no fucking Robin Williams and it never really... It never really kind of gets that zip or oomph to it, you know, as they as they plod around a very nice set of of the you know ancient what's it called, Jif, you know, uh, the ancient city, you know, in Aladdin. It's like, yeah, okay, nice. Here he goes hopping from one one rooftop to another, but it, it never quite. It just doesn't have that zip to it, you know. And as yeah. for Dumbo, the fuck. <sighs> Yeah, uh, it's a weird one this remake here, because I don't actually hate the films. I hate, I, yeah, I hate the idea that yeah, the, the, like the thing is, it. someone in the stu- in the exec boardroom has got to have the guts to say, "This two hundred million dollars, I'm going to find someone who's got a new story, and I'm going to read the idea, right? And I'm going to talk to the director and the writer, and I'm going to trust my judgment. This is going to be a good and successful film, and I'm going to, you know, my reputation is going to hang on whether this film does well at the box office and gets good reviews." and whether kids are still singing the songs in five years. And I don't think any of them have got the nerve to do that anymore. 
because they failed so many times with so many of their new ideas. Yeah, no. But I mean, there's no, there seems no end in sight. I mean, Pinocchio's on its way, Peter Pan's on its way, Snow White's on his way. They've now, they keep doing these flip side stories, so Maleficent, the other kind of, you know, the, 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 the true story of how she became the antagonist in Sleeping Beauty, and then they tried to do a sequel. Now they're going to do Cruella. I mean, <laughs> how, what, what, I'm sure the thing is they will hire competent people to do a good job of the story, but I would, who really wants to see how Cruella became like a puppy murderer? How, how, how does that story go? <laughs> yeah. And they're going to do Tinkerbell as well. It's like Tinkerbell's, Tinkerbell's origin story. I mean, so what, man? Yeah. They're going to do Little Mermaid. There's going to be a sequel to Jungle Book. They're going to be a sequel to Lion King. There's going, to, you know, there's going to be a new. They're going to do a new version of Hunchback of Notre Dame, Bambi, Hercules, all live action. So oh, fucking hell. Uh, as, I mean, I don't mind because the, they're making. If that money can be invested into making the Mandalorian, I don't mind at all. It's cool. No, no, I agree. Um, but I mean, I I really think this is this this comes down to a weakness in the Hollywood boardroom, and it's a weakness that's been there actually for about twenty years now. Unfortunately, yeah. Hmm. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're looking at how CGI has changed the world of film and what it might do to the industry in the future. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity, and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to us. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credit at the end of reel two of the episode including info on the films and topics we discussed look forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute see you on the other side okay boom big lebowski saving private ride in schindler's list jurassic park <laughs>